Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden has cut short his Pacific trip to return to Washington to restart talks to avert a first ever debt default. That's meant canceling his in-person participation in the Quad meeting in Sydney, as well as a key meeting of Pacific Island leaders in Papua New Guinea. In Sydney, a key part of the discussion was to have been the AUKUS agreement, which was discussed at the G7 meeting as well. Joining us to discuss the wide-ranging technological and industrial cooperation agreement among Australia, Britain, and the United States, that has a tendency of focusing on nuclear-powered submarines for Canberra, is Bill Greenwald, one of the nation's leading defense industrial thinkers, who was a longtime staffer on the Hill, including for the late, great Senator John McCain. Bill is now with the American Enterprise Institute. He's the co-author of a new report by the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney, Breaking the Barriers, Reforming U.S. Export Controls to Realize the Potential of AUKUS. Tom Corbin of USSC was Bill's co-author. Dr. Greenwald, welcome back, and thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks, Vago. Looking forward to it. An absolute uh, pleasure. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval warfare coverage. Um, Many people, Bill, uh, like to focus on sort of the broad sweeping strokes uh, of AUKUS. And what you guys did is a great service by focusing on the nitty gritty uh, that will either uh, lead to success or to failure, given the international traffic uh, in arms regulation is central to the way the United States does business with its allies and partners. We have a multiplicity of uh, agreements, obviously, and, and Britain and Australia and Canada fall into a totally different uh, category, considered the same national industrial base as the United States. So that's that's good news. Um, AUKUS was a deal uh, that was born uh, right in the wake of the collapse in Afghanistan. Uh, And there were a lot of interests for this, right? Scott Morrison wanted to win re-election. Boris Johnson wanted to stick it to the French. Washington wanted to change the subject. But we still ended up with a very, very valuable agreement that's across the board from quantum computing uh, to cyber to artificial intelligence and, yes, nuclear submarines. First, you you, you guys note that people have a tendency of misunderstanding what this agreement is. What is AUKUS and what isn't it? And what's the right way to think about it? Sure. Uh, I would not look at AUKUS as an alliance, but as a, as, a, as a potential partnership in producing new military capability to offset uh, the, the rise of, of, of uh, Chinese military power in, in, in the Indo-Pacific. And, and, and so it, it, it's divided into three segments that, that uh, the first is, uh, uh, you know, trying to operationalize and, and, and bring submarine capability uh, to the uh, Australians. The second is in, in the, in, in the uh, emerging tech field in which uh, you, you mentioned quantum, but also autonomy and, and, and a lot of other uh, new emerging technology, which primarily are, are driven by the commercial marketplace. And then the third, which not officially part of AUKUS, but, but one that's, that's closely associated, is the ability to create new uh, legacy capabilities at scales. So in other words, co-production of, of various uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, systems in Australia and, and perhaps in the U.K. 
And so from your guys' perspective, what are the biggest impediments to realizing this, right? Because some parts of this agreement moved, have been moving much more quickly. Uh, the submarine part of it, obviously, there was a 15-month study. We now have, what is it, the optimal submarine roadmap or whatever it's called, or pillar optimal roadmap one or whatever it is. Uh, but what, what are the biggest impediments from your standpoint to realizing this important agreement? Well, you know, the, the, the first the first is, you know, because this was initially a political agreement and, and it looks as though the the details were to be uh, determined later, there wasn't a lot of thought put into the barriers uh, to achieving each and every one of these, uh, uh, you know, the three three pillars, I'm going to call them. And, you know, the, the, the issue here is there are a lot of uh, just transactional issues to to, to get to uh, achieving any any of these capabilities, and and ITAR is is obviously one of those. But you know, just our our budgeting systems and our acquisition systems, which are slow and difficult to make decisions, uh, obviously are another. And so these these kind of plumbing of government issues are going to keep the ability of of AUKUS to be relevant. Uh, uh, in, in 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 the time scales that that should be we should be looking at. And I think that's another thing. That's another hindrance is we need to start looking at AUKUS and what can it deliver in the next five years. Submarines are way out there. So right. what is it we could actually bring in either emerging tech or legacy tech to actually change the uh, the status of forces that currently exist in the Indo-PACOM? How uh, how relevant? Right. I mean, this is um, a big debate. There are those who fear that by setting the submarine delivery date, you know, in 2040, we're actually doing ourselves um, a grave disservice, right? I mean, if you want that to be a deterrent, God forbid, you may have missed your deterrent window and you may have already fought a war by then, uh, right, with, with the Chinese. How important is speed in this agreement as far as you're concerned? And I know that people, you know, say like, well, that we shouldn't be thinking about windows, but actually you should be thinking about windows, right? If you expect a great world war by 1940, you should have started your planning, say, maybe not in 1938, but actually started taking it seriously, maybe in 1933, right, uh, to, to try to avert things, uh, which which is maybe a lesson we haven't yet learned. What's the speed factor here? How should uh, we be thinking I, about it? I think speed is everything. And I do think we need to look at uh, multiple windows. And the first window is what can be done in the next two to five year time frame. And then the next uh, five-year time frame, and finally, we can start looking at deployment of of, of long-term, you know, AUKUS-class submarines in that uh, you know 2040, 2045 time frame. But right now, all of that, the focus has been on things in the long term, which is strategically uh, and tactically irrelevant to to the the problems we're going to face. In the, or, or need to deter, and that's I think that's the most important thing. What do you need to have a capability to deter the type of uh, uh, conflict that uh, you're, you're talking about there, Vago? What are the specific impediments, right? I mean, we have a tendency of talking about the uh, ITAR as opposed to looking and drilling, which is what you guys did at some of the very specific elements of it, where we need change, right? A lot of this is about interpretation uh, on arms export, right? One administration may be more permissive. The other administration may be starting at a uh, presumption of denial, right? As opposed to a presumption of approval. Um, what, what are the specific impediments we need to be addressing to make sure AUKUS is a success? Well, I think the, the initial uh, impediment is just in the US's mindset 
that there are really, really important new technologies being produced around the world in, in, in the alliance and we need to work with them. And because we take the, uh, the, 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 the view that you know, we've been dominating defense technology for the last 50 years, that uh, we're gonna continue to do so, and that's not the case. And, and so there are new uh, capabilities being produced not only by our adversaries, but by our allies. And frankly, some of the biggest ones are out there in the commercial marketplace. So how does ITAR you know, create a barrier to it bringing in allied and commercial technologies. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the stickiness of uh, US participation in any commercial or allied uh, uh, endeavor. And that stickiness is referred to as an ITAR taint, essentially gives control of, of the overarching technology to the US Department of State, even if the technology was developed uh, by the allies or, or, or in the commercial marketplace. There are other things, the universal application, of ITAR, the non-materiality of certain uh, coverage, the relationship between uh, uh, the stickiness of defense services and, and, and technical data to, to attaching to an item. All these things are fixable, but right now they create this morass of, 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 of just incredible process and inability to actually incentivize anyone to sit down and work with the United States. Uh, on, on new, new developments and capabilities. We've been talking um, about right where you can move more, more quickly uh, and certainly um, in, in a lot of areas, whether it's AI or in autonomy, we're seeing commercial industry really being the leaders. This is something you've been discussing for decades for anybody uh, who uh, knows you and the importance of us figuring out how to harness these commercial technological cycles, right? Because the key is, the, the speed and the scale with which you adopt innovation, right? And we're gonna to get to that in, in a moment. But where are the parts of AUKUS you think that will be moving uh, faster and thereby actually set maybe some of the conditions to move faster on the bigger programs, right? So where, where are the smaller gains we can make to identify and then start troubleshooting problems that then helps the bus overall move faster? I think the uh, the Australians have some very interesting technologies uh, in uh, in radar, in, in space, uh, in uh, autonomy uh, that they actually have real capabilities that could be brought in to with the U.S. And so the first kind of no brainer, let's let's sit down and work with them and ensure that we can protect their intellectual property while also enhancing these capabilities for use for the U.S. Those to me are are, are the low hanging fruit. In addition, starting to creating co-production of uh, either precision guided munitions or other munitions uh, with, with, with the Australians is, 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 a, is a real possibility. Plus actually uh, looking at supply chain vulnerabilities such as in rare earth scenarios like that. Now that's, you know, that's not talking about submarines, but it's talking about a partnership and a relationship that can be used as test cases to improve uh, uh, the, the various uh, uh, pillars that, that, that are in AUKUS. I think also we need to, at the off the bat, try to solve the ability to build up that submarine uh, uh, industrial base capability in Australia. That's going to require a lot of cooperation, bringing in HII and and, and bringing in General Dynamics into Australia, and we have to figure out a way to have those conversations in in in, in as as uh, streamlined manner as possible to develop that capability there. 
Project Jericho, uh, for anybody who's not familiar with it and anybody who's familiar with the show hears me talk about it all the time, but was, I thought, a brilliant endeavor by the uh, Royal Australian Air Force to try to figure out the nature of advantage and that the key isn't creating sort of more new things, but it's the ability to create the culture to innovate faster than your adversary yeah. uh, and to do so by grabbing something, uh, scaling it quickly, uh, adapting it quickly and, 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 you know, or I should say adapting it quickly, scaling it and then fielding it in, in volume when and where you need it. We had Dr. Nina Collars, uh, the uh, advisor uh, to Dr. Shu on. Uh, and what Dr. Collars last week said is, look, I mean, that's the key is to create that cultural foundation to be able to move quickly. From your standpoint, what are the things we could be learning from the Australians and the Brits and what are the, you know, and, and how is the administration doing by setting up, right? Her point is go slow in order to go fast, fix the little details, get the culture right, and actually the whole operation will move faster. And that that's uh, what, what they're trying to do. Although that's been an endeavor the last several administrations have been trying to do, and you help try to help them do that through the legislation you helped uh, champion. How are we doing? What are the predicates? How does this look if we're going to do what it is we need to do when we need to do it? I think the Australians uh, and, and the Brits and, and the partnerships with some of our other allies that the, that the Brits are having with the Japanese and the Koreans are predicated on a concept that the U.S. has just not got their arms around, which is innovation by time. And it's not innovation speed for speed state. It's basically putting almost artificial constraints on uh, the, the uh, uh, deployment of some type of operational capability. That's what middle tier acquisition is supposed to be about. Uh, and, and, and that's what the something like uh, OT, other transaction prototyping is supposed to, supposed to deliver as well. Our allies, because they just don't have the money in our, and have the ingrained bureaucracy and system, uh, have a competitive advantage to actually doing what we used to do in the 1950s. If you look at our submarine program in the 1950s, if you look at our uh, uh, aircraft programs, and if you look at primarily uh, the, the first creation of you know, satellites and, and ICBMs, there was this iterative operational prototyping system built on the, uh, the, the time constraints of getting new capability out in the field. That I think is what we're missing is what uh, the, uh, the Australians seem to be trying to grapple with in certain areas, but, but not completely. They have their own acquisition problems as well. But I think that's the lesson that we all can learn is it's not speed for speed sake. It's creating capability that has time constraints that essentially uh, throws out a lot of the uh, bureaucratic impediments that, that are frankly are non-value added and unnecessary. The Obama administration uh, started ringing the alarm bell about China and the need for us to change and to start changing more quickly. The late uh, Dr. Ash Carter uh, was uh, the one who um, sort of most typified that change to harness Silicon Valley, uh, going back to the Cold War. But actually, it was his predecessor, Chuck Hagel, uh, that launched the Defense Innovation Initiative. From, you know, and the, uh, the Trump administration tried to push all of those efforts uh, forward. Uh, Ellen Lord worked that really hard. Dr. Roper was doing that. Dr. Jetty in the Air Force, Dr. Jetty was in the Army. Um, and, and obviously, Hondo Gertz was trying to drive innovation in the Navy. Walk us through a little bit how this administration is doing and are we starting to move this needle as quickly as we need to be moving? 
So the, the administration um, has embraced a number of middle tier acquisition programs. I think there are 110, 120 uh, such programs. We should be able to see deployable operational capability in the next five, five years. Bringing DIU back up to the Secretary of Defense level is, is important. But the, where this founders uh, in, in, in the US system is it's not just the acquisition system. So you can go faster with mid-tier you can go faster with other transactions. The linkage is, is we still have a decision time upfront problem to start programs and, and, and start efforts. And, and you, know, you have a, a three-year requirements process, a three-year uh, budget process to get, to get uh, capability uh, programmed. There's no flexible pots of money to start efforts that frankly can lead to, to the type of operational prototyping envisioned by mid-tier. If you wait around for three years for a mid-tier, five-year mid-tier program, your mid-tier program is now eight years. If you wait around for the requirements folks to, to, to understand what's going on, you got to add another three years to that. Then we're not going very fast. And I think that's that's the, the issue is the need to uh, reform requirements, to reform budget, to create uh, flexible pots of money to start these things. And then the reality is we're going to have to incentivize bringing in of the best scientists and engineers around the globe with our and our allies in the commercial sector. And that's where the ITAR problem comes in because we need to streamline that process as well. So what are some of the things we should be learning, right? From an AUKUS perspective, what is it that our allies and partners are doing that's worth us scrutinizing, uh, right? I mean, the Brits have been very pragmatic in their acquisition system, even at the risk of degrading their own national industrial capability because they were less focused on it. They were always focused on deliverable capability and as much, quote, value for money as possible. The Australians had a national industrial strategy, right? I mean, submarines and ships have to be built in full uh, in the countries, which has uh, posed challenges, obviously, for the Collins class that we're trying to learn lessons from. From your standpoint, what are the bits from each of these that are worth looking at and serving as inspiration uh, in the context of the AUKUS deal? I think I, I would actually turn that question to what should be looking at in the future. You know, each each country has their their positives and, 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 and negatives. But I think what we need to be looking at is that our alliances in general, our partners in general have have committed to spending a significant amount of new resources in the future, and uh, you know something like you know a, 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 you know in the next five years a trillion dollars in new new money. This, that, that's not just the UK and Australia. Obviously, it's 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 all of our partners. And right now, we are incentivizing these partners to not work with us because they do not want these whatever money they're spending on defense to be tainted by ITAR. That's going to lead to an incredible amount of duplication of effort, uh, a, a, a potential loss of, 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 of in innovation that we could be, be working with. But it'll create a but but it will create a, a separate uh, uh, number of different new innovations that perhaps we can bring in, but it's it's just something that uh, that that we're 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 potentially missing a huge opportunity and the place to test that new idea of working with our allies is with our closest allies, which is the UK, Australia, and I would add Canada and New Zealand to that as well. Right. The, the Five Eyes uh, nations, right? An easy, easy way of doing it. I mean, look, I would expand it to include um, Japan 
and France uh, as well, uh, two very important nations from an Asia-Pacific uh, context, two nations that do want to work more closely with us, and two nations with, with which we have uh, sort of deep technology sharing experience, albeit deeper with the Japanese than historically with the French. Just really quickly for the audience and those people who don't know what mid-tier acquisition programs are, this was one of your creations. This is one of your babies, Dr. Greenwald. Uh, so explain to the audience what a mid-tier is, um, because there has been some reluctance, right, um, uh, on the part of some in the department to embrace uh, the notion. What is mid-tier and why is it important? Sure. No, absolutely. Uh, so there, there are the, we have a traditional acquisition system, which is now takes about 15 to 20 years to deliver capability. Uh, in uh, the, the beginning of the, uh, the Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq conflicts, Congress authorized what uh, uh, rapid acquisition authorities, RAA authorities, which are designed to deploy capability in less than two years. Uh, the concept of middle tier put, it, put into uh, legislation was to try to force the department to focus on deploying operational capabilities in the two to five year window. And what this was designed from was to look back in our past when we did initial operational prototyping, uh, rapid development. Uh, so for example, the first uh, reconnaissance satellites how the uh, ICBMs were, were developed in, in, in uh, de deployments in just a few years of development, uh, the, the, uh, the, the early nuclear submarine programs and et cetera, all in the 50s and 60s was how we actually developed these initial capabilities. And so this was designed to, to kickstart uh, these, these, these new capabilities in, 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 in the modern era. But most importantly, it puts a limit on, on them. It puts a time constraint and therefore, what you achieve out of these programs, you can decide whether to create a real program of record or go to the next phase of another serial operational prototyping, just as we did in the 50s and 60s. So it was designed to give another alternative acquisition path to the department and to try to essentially de-risk some of the major defense programs that we do now today, where we don't de actually deploy uh, a serial uh, level of capability. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to the submarines uh, question. Um, this is a mishmash of interests, unfortunately, that are coming together uh, and will require flexibility on the part of all in order to try to achieve it. The U.S. Navy at first didn't want anything to do with it. Then it embraced the deal thinking, OK, the Australians can help underwrite the cost of expanding the U.S. Uh, reactor industrial base so that it gets more reactors for its own needs because we want to try to get to three attack subs and one ballistic missile submarine a year. That's very hard to do because there are not a lot of cores that are lying around, especially for Virginia class subs that have a through life core. Uh, and, and we have not yet figured out a way to refuel them. At the same time, the Australians are supposed to get some Virginias before transfer, you know, going to this next generation Anglo-Australian submarine. And there are even Brits who say that's not likely because once the Australians get the gateway drug of a Virginia class, they're not going to want a mixed fleet at, at the end of the day. How do we need to be thinking about the industrial politics, industrial challenges, and very concrete ITAR-related issues that go with it? Because once we transferred the technology to the Brits in 1958 in the agreement between Hyman Rickover and Admiral Lord Mountbatten, that's in their own ecosystem. Right, they've continued to develop that S5W 
original technology and advance it on their own. And we've been doing our own thing on, on our side. I mean, how does this end up working, Bill, ITAR-wise? Well, I, I, we can do ITAR-wise. We can also do, you know, the first part of your question was industrial-based-wise. And we just do not have that capacity at the moment to do what we think we want to do. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and you, you've seen the numbers, how we'll be retiring submarines, you know, faster than we'll uh, uh, replace them. And we, do, we, you know, when we're trying to get up to three plus one, but the reality is what are we producing now? We're producing 1.2 submarines a year, and that's as fast as we can go. Um, you know, and lot... we should be building two subs, attack subs a year at this point. And once we get to uh, the Columbia class, that's three attack submarine equivalents. So we need to get to five attack submarine equivalents. Yes. Right? A year. Exactly. A year. And, 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 you know, and I don't, that is the one area that I don't think was really thought through on this political agreement on what is the capacity. And the question, the long-term question is, can we actually build that capacity in these three nations without bringing in say the Japanese or without bringing in the French without, you know, the Western Alliance may not have the capability to produce that many submarines at, 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 you know, a year. And, and so what, is that, what does that actually mean? Well, we may have to start refurbishing old ones. And I think you're starting to see LA classes, you know, SLEPs being considered there. I think, you know, we'll have to be doing that on, on our, our allies' submarines as well. But probably most importantly, we're gonna have to start thinking outside the box. And that's where pillar two is so important in the uh, unmanned, submersible, uh, uh, and, and other, other capabilities to augment the, uh, the submarine capacity that we have. Can we deploy you know, hundreds of, uh, of various uh, autonomous submarines to do certain missions in the South China Sea and, uh, and, 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 and other areas around the world? And is that the augmentation we can make? And is that, a, is that an industrial base that can be actually uh, spun up faster to, to augment the, the capability of the, the, the slowness that we're gonna get to achieving these five, which may, we may never be able to achieve. Uh, but at the end, right, if, if you want to make sure that you have, right, it would make sense to have maybe a more disciplined process and do the technology sharing that gets, right, the Australian, American, and British submarines more common. Each of these nations have an industrial base they're trying to protect, right, especially yeah. when it comes for nuclear, for submarines and nuclear submarines on top of that, right? Collins got into a little bit of trouble because of the Australia manufacturing requirements, uh, right? The motors couldn't be wound by Saab or Cockums. Uh, they had to be wound by an Australian company and, and there were some flaws in, in how that was produced, um, you know, and a number of other challenges across the boats. What are some things we can do and what are the ways that ITAR need to be used? Because, right, the, the fear that our allies and partners have, and you've noted this, is we use that as a weapon and as a cudgel to advance our own industrial and security interests at the, at, the, at the interests of our allies and partners sometimes, right? So what are some of the specific things we can do? Because then nuclear is another layer on top of that. That's a complicating element. How do we need to be looking at this if, if we want to have sort of a tri-nation, quad-nation, five-nation agreement that helps us get to a more economical, larger force future that I think would be advantageous for everybody ultimately. 
and 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 what what you're uh, implying here is that uh, and and I agree is that ITAR needs to be to uh, modeled around in these this particular category of technologies into a free exchange zone of cooperation and knowledge uh, within the uh, within the uh, the countries and that is something that you know so so ITAR needs to be modified so we can actually have these conversations and not just conversations at the technical level but conversations at the uh, uh, industrial level to actually build up and create the capacities and knowledge so you so each of our nations can supplement uh, production of, of these cap capabilities because when we get down to it we all now do not have the scale that the Chinese have and 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 we need to work together on this and, and so the first thing is to modify ITAR whether it's an open general license whether it's some type of uh, comparable nuclear agreement or submarine agreement that we we, we, we had with the Brits uh, for Australia or a tri-nation or, 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 or multiple nations and, and have these conversations and begin a time developed uh, process on the submarine side. That's on the, that's on producing and, and maintaining existing submarine capacity. Then I believe in pillar two, we need to start looking at things like how do we modify commercial underwater uh, uh, submersibles like uh, the, the Anduril proposal that's going on in Australia today and, and do that for the Alliance and, 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 and create multiple sources of underwater capabilities that can be launched uh, and, 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 and augment the, the existing uh, uh, summary force. And that requires, again, an open general license, some type of, a, of an ITAR reform that allows for the free flow and exchange of information and the ability to use that, those, those technologies within each country. Um, we in it, let me ask one uh, last uh, question. It's sort of conjoined to this whole debt drama. Um, the great strategic advantage the United States has is the dollar is the world's reserve currency, uh, and yet our very actions by flirting every couple of years with a debt default uh, for a whole bunch of domestic political reasons is actually eroding the enormous superpower we have. And every time we indiscriminately use sanctions and we hurt our allies in the process, that undermines the dollar as well and attracts people's interest to create another reserve currency. Decades, you know, it was about a decade and a half ago, and you remember this, when uh, the French and the Italians started saying ITAR free is going to be the way we're going to go because we're not going to have Washington jerking our chain every couple of years if we want to do business with somebody they don't want us to do business with. And so it has created a whole ecosystem, as you, you noted. What's at stake for the United States? Um, okay, don't discuss the dollar part of it, but do if you want, right? It's a, it's a common symptom of having a lot of hubris and thinking I'm the master of the universe. And I, you know, every time I sort of tell you jump, you jump. After a while, people want to kill the giant, right? So how, how, what are things we have to do to actually serve our own long-term interest by bringing our allies and partners closer, as opposed to kind of consistently alienating them? I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right that a lot of our problems deal with our, our hubris, and that hubris is, is essentially uh, uh, was established in the time of military technical dominance, which was essentially the, the, the 50s and 60s, when we were, by the way, spending 10% of our GDP on, on defense 
and when we were uh, essentially driving research and development in the world, the first thing to, to, to recognize is that world is no longer exists, that uh, technology is being driven all over the world in our allies and our adversaries and primarily in the commercial marketplace. And to step back and understand that we are not spending and we have not spent enough money to be the driver in that area. And we need a little bit of humility and a, and, and, and a whole lot of reaching out to our allies and creating the mechanisms in place to, to have that cooperation. ITAR is a legacy of that US military technological dominance of the 1960s and 70s. You know, uh, Arms Export Control Act came around in, in 1975. Built on the hubristic notion that we were the dominance and we could control technology and keep it from, uh, from spreading around the world. And I think the, 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 the reality is, is that with or whether it's sanctions, whether it's export controls, whether it's using the, the, the power that the US has, uh, that has a half-life. And that half-life is now you know, coming to an end and the world has changed and we have to change with it. Wise words, Dr. Greenwald. Uh, Bill, uh, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Um, great work. I commend people uh, to read it. And more importantly, uh, I'd like policymakers to actually think this through and what's at stake, uh, because the slower we move, I mean, we are just not embracing innovation at the speed. We have to be embracing it. At, uh, and our allies and partners are actually getting a little bit better at this game than, than, than we are. So um, any last bits of advice for 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 the policymakers in the audience? No, I, I, Raghu, I just think that you know we just have to change with the times, and and the first thing to do is to understand what times really are that we that we live in, and frankly, where our adversaries are going, and and I and I think it just logically leads to uh, the, the types of uh, uh, outcomes that uh, require cooperation with our allies a cooperation with our commercial uh, 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 companies and, uh, and basically, a, again, a little humility. You were on a little while ago and we talked about um, the, the pace of uh, adopting the innovations from the annuals of the world. And I think the conclusion was we're still a little too slow uh, at, at figuring out how to do it. Although the, the war in Ukraine, uh, as well as the, the needs of allies and partners have changed the dynamic right away from sort of the big primes and the way they, they do things in exchange for agile companies that are coming in there and saying, hey, look, I invested to develop a product and to give it to you and I can scale and I'm not going to put you over a barrel. I'm going to do it relatively economically, right? We should be harnessing that as best we can. I, I think if we don't and we don't uh, engage in, in these type of companies, whether the the uh, SpaceX's, the uh, Anderols, and the Palantirs of the world, and there are many, many, many others. Uh, our allies and partners will create these companies and, and engage them and create uh, the capabilities that will essentially uh, be, be much better than what we have. So we have really no choice but to do that. And, and the, the big companies are going to have to pivot, and, and uh, the rule set is going to have to change, and the incentives are going to have to change. And that's not something that either the, the, the Department of Defense or the, the defense industry is yet willing to come to grips with. Bill, thanks very much again. Always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Vago. Love to be here.